Our reading this morning is from John chapter 19, verses 17 through 30. John 19, verses 17 through 30. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray once again. Father, thank you for this portion of your holy, inspired, inerrant word. Father, I pray that you would give me grace now to say words that do justice to the incredible sacrifice of our Savior on the cross. What a daunting task. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to pay careful attention to the truths of Scripture this morning. Lord, help us to be overwhelmed and amazed by your grace through these amazing words, through this incredible story. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If a Roman citizen from the first century teleported to the year 2024, they would be shocked and bewildered to see people wearing cross necklaces or to see churches with crosses on the steeple or to hear Christians sing songs about the cross. We often forget that Crosses were ancient torture devices designed to inflict maximum pain before a slow and humiliating death. Speaking of crucifixions, New Testament scholar William Barclay states, the Romans themselves regarded it with a shudder of horror. Cicero declared, 
that it was the most cruel and horrifying death. Tacitus said that it was a despicable death. The fact that Christians love the cross today, again, would have horrified the Romans. Wouldn't you be horrified if people walked around wearing electric chairs, swords, grenades, or lethal injection needles around their necks? Wouldn't you be shocked if people sang songs about that old, bloody electric chair? Or the power of the lethal injection needle? Wouldn't you be shocked if churches placed lethal injection needles or tanks on their steeples? Now, all this raises the question, why are Christians so fixated with the cross, an ancient torture device? In other words, why is the cross the crux, literally Latin for cross, why is the cross the crux of Christianity? Why is the cross so central to everything that Christians do? Why do we sing so many songs about the cross? Why? Again, this would have shocked the Romans, and we must never, ever, ever forget that. But why? Why do we celebrate the cross? Because of what the cross achieved. Now, the cross achieved many, many things. This text lists many, but we're going to focus on three things the cross achieved. And in light of these things, it's no wonder that Christians love to sing about, celebrate, and wear crosses. So what did the cross achieve? The cross displayed God's love. The cross fulfilled God's word. And the cross finished God's mission. Let me provide a little bit of context for this particular story. Uh, in John 18, in the first half of John 19, Jesus Christ is on trial before the Jews and the Romans. And they, wrong, they wrongfully convict him of a crime he did not commit. And now he's being crucified unjustly. And that brings us to John 19, 17 to 30. And again, what did the cross achieve first? The cross, achieved, uh, the cross displayed God's love. Look with me at John 19, verses 17 to 18. Verse 17. And he went out, referring to Jesus, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now, the first four words of verse 18 describe arguably the most important event in the history of the world. John simply writes, There they crucified him. Now, what in the world does crucifixion mean? Said another way, what about the cross displays God's love? Well, a few things. The physical anguish of the cross displayed God's love. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, imported to the Mediterranean by the Carthaginians, and sadly perfected by the Romans. It was designed to combine maximum shame with excruciating physical pain leading to death. That word excruciating comes from the cross. You can hear the word crux in excruciating. Excruciating pain is the pain of the cross. 
Crucifixion was so horrible that it was against the law to crucify a Roman citizen no matter how horrible their crime. It was reserved for slaves and foreigners. Victims were stripped naked. Unlike the pictures you see of the cross, Jesus Christ was naked. They were stripped naked to maximize shame. Then they were flogged by Roman soldiers. The flogging was designed to rip skin and muscle off the back to make it more painful and difficult to actually carry part of the cross to the site of, of execution and to make it much more painful once they were hanging on the cross. And as I mentioned last week, the, this flogging often killed the victim before they were even crucified. It was an incredibly painful ordeal. Then, after being flogged, they were forced to carry part of the cross, weighing 100 pounds, on their mangled backs and shoulders, two to 300 yards to the site of crucifixion. Then they usually experienced two to three days of insufferable pain and humiliation, which often ended in death by suffocation. One scholar says this about crucifixion. Once Jesus arrived at the site of crucifixion, he was made to lie on the ground while his arms were stretched out and nailed to the horizontal beam that he carried. The beam was then hoisted up along with the victim and fastened to the vertical beam. His feet were nailed to the vertical beam to which sometimes was attached a piece of wood that served as a kind of seat that partially supported the weight of the body. The latter, however, was designed to prolong and increase the agony, not relieve it. Having been stripped naked and beaten, Jesus could hang in the hot sun for hours, if not days. To breathe, it was necessary to push with the legs and pull with the arms, creating excruciating pain. Now remember, at this moment, there were massive nails or spikes driven through his ankles and his hands. Imagine pushing up on that with the weight of your body. Terrible muscle spasms racked the entire body, but since collapse meant asphyxiation or suffocation, the struggle for life continued. The physical price that Jesus Christ was willing to pay to secure our redemption, what word do we use to describe it? Stupefying, dumbfounding, astonishing. There are no words to describe this level of pain and sacrifice. The intense physical anguish of the cross displayed God's extravagant love. In addition, the intense spiritual anguish of the cross displayed God's love. As awful as Christ's physical pain and anguish on the cross was, it paled in comparison to Christ's spiritual anguish on the cross. What do I mean? On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath and punishment for the sins of billions of people. He took the penalty that we deserved. He took the penalty and the wrath for the rapist, the murderer, the adulterer, the warlord, the slave trader, the grumbler, the complainer, the proud, the thieves. He took the penalty that you and I deserved. As a result, on the cross, Jesus was abandoned by his own father, the one who he had perfect fellowship with. 
And it's interesting to note that as awful as the physical pain of the cross was, Jesus did not raise his voice and cry out in agony until he was abandoned by his own father. Crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason why is because in that moment, Christ was bearing the wrath for the sins of billions and billions of people, including you and me. The anguish and sacrifice of the cross of Christ magnifies God's love. Yet some of us still wonder, does God love me? Imagine for a moment a couple had been married for 30 years, and the romance, the fire, the passion has cooled off. And the wife wonders, does my husband still love me? And the husband realizes, I've been slacking off. I need to step up my game and prove to my wife, display for her my extravagant love. So he sells his golf clubs. He sells his motorcycle. He sells his hunting rifle. He sells his pickup truck with the lift kit. Why? Because he wants to provide his wife with a month-long vacation in Bermuda. Then he sets aside not one, but two nights a week for date night. Date night twice a week. Then he begs his wife for the honeydew list. Sweetheart, I'm longing to serve you. What can I do to make your life easier? I can change light bulbs. I can fix the dishwasher. I can build some bookshelves. I can organize the messy basement. He even suggests they take a ballroom dancing class together. He is taking up his cross, sacrificing, serving, displaying extravagant love. Now, after all these examples, after this massive display of costly, sacrificial love, do you think that his wife doubts for a second that he loves her? Of course not. (laughs) Why? Because he has displayed incredibly costly, sacrificial love. Yet how much more, my friends, has Jesus Christ displayed for us incredibly costly, painful, sacrificial love on the cross? When do you doubt God's love? After your life savings evaporates in the stock market, after you've been rejected by a close friend, maybe a child or a parent or a sibling, is it when your child refuses to communicate with you at age 30? Or when you've committed the same sin the sixth time this week? Or when God feels aloof or distant? When you doubt God's love for you personally. Remember that Jesus was stripped naked in your place. 
He was whipped in your place. He was mocked in your place. He was tortured in your place. He hung on a Roman cross in your place. He bore the wrath of God Almighty in your place. What else can God do to scream, I love you? Nothing. Nothing. But does God love me personally? I mean, I know that God loves the world. I know that Christ died for the world, but does he love me? Maybe I got in on the group plan. Does he love me? Yes. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for this massive chunk of humanity. He died for individual sinners. He died for your sins, every evil thought, every evil deed. Your name was written on the palm of his hands. He died for you individually. The cross of Christ displayed God's love, but the cross achieved so much more. Which brings us to the next point. First, the cross displayed God's love. Second, the cross fulfilled God's word. Look with me at John 19, 23 to 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Verse 24 indicates very clearly that the specific actions of these wicked soldiers were predicted a thousand years beforehand in the words of Psalm 22. But this is just the tip of the prophetic iceberg. Several aspects of Christ's life, death, and resurrection were predicted in advance. Like what? The fact that Christ would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41.9. His disciples would forsake him, Psalm 31.11. He would remain quiet before his judges, Psalm 35.11. His formal acquittal, Isaiah 53.9. His crucifixion between sinners, Isaiah 53.12. His crucifixion itself, Psalm 22.16. The mocking onlooker, Psalm 109.25. Soldiers gambling for his clothing, Psalm 22, 18. His cry of thirst, Psalm 69, 21. His bones remaining unbroken, Psalm 34, 20. And his burial in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, 9. And so much more. There are at least 191 specific prophecies about the life of Christ from the Old Testament. Peter Kreeft, the prominent Boston College philosopher, writes this. If you could calculate the probability of any one person fulfilling sheerly by chance all the Old Testament messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, it would be as astronomical as winning the lottery every day for a century. Even if Jesus deliberately tried to fulfill the prophecies, no mere man could have the power to arrange the time, place, events and circumstances of his birth or events after his death. Now, 
at this point. Skeptics often say, well, Jesus knew the Old Testament, so he intentionally did things to fulfill prophecy. It's not fulfilled prophecy, it's manipulation, they often argue. (laughs) Here's R.C. Sproul's response to that skeptical comment. He writes, John does not say that the Roman soldiers got together and said, we should gamble for his garments because it says in the Jewish scriptures that someone is going to cast lots for his clothes and we want to make sure that the scriptures are fulfilled down to the last detail. If these men are attempting to fulfill scripture, why would they really crucify the Messiah and then divvy up his belongings right in front of him while he dies? Here's the point. Let me ask you a question. When do you doubt that Christianity is true? Now, if you haven't had that thought, you haven't lived long enough or suffered enough yet. But if you live long enough, you will wonder, is all this stuff in the Bible really true? Is it really true? Can I really bank my life on what the Bible says? When do you doubt that it's true? Is it when your biology professor mocks the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2? When your literature professor argues that the Bible is full of contradictions? When you meet really nice people from other religions who are really sincere and kind? When you talk to well-educated skeptics? When do you doubt? I get it. People raise legitimate issues. But fulfilled prophecy proves beyond a reasonable doubt that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God because only one person knows the future, and it's God. And there are literally hundreds, actually thousands, of specific prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament from the Old Testament proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the Bible is trustworthy and true. Therefore, you and I can bank our lives on its teaching. Fulfilled prophecy proves the Bible can be and must be trusted because it's true. And if the Bible is true, then you and I really are sinners. If the Bible is true, then Jesus Christ really did come to earth. He really is the Son of God, and he really died on the cross for our sins. And if the Bible is true, Jesus Christ really rose from the grave, proving that he's God. And if the Bible is true, heaven and hell are real. If the Bible is true, some of your friends are going to go to hell, and some are going to go to heaven. If the Bible is true, then everyone here must make a decision this morning to bow the knee to King Jesus and trust him entirely with their lives. If the Bible is true, everything changes and nothing matters but serving and worshiping King Jesus. Nothing else matters. Nothing. And fulfill prophecy is rock-solid evidence that the Bible is from God. The hymn writer got it right when he wrote, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent 
word. It's a firm foundation, and fulfilled prophecy proves that is true. The cross fulfilled God's word, proving that Christianity is true. But the cross accomplished even more, bringing us to the last point. The cross displays God's love. The cross fulfilled God's word. And the cross finished God's mission. Look with me at John 19, verses 28 to 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now when Jesus says, I thirst, it's proof that Jesus was fully man. He thirsted. He experienced pain. Remember, he had to be fully God and fully man to rescue us, and he was both. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. One word in the Greek, tetelestai. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now in the Greek, the word it is finished is in the perfect tense, meaning it is finished and always will be finished. So the question is, what did Christ finish? What did he complete? What did he actually accomplish? The ransom price was fully paid. The redeemed were finally freed. The curse of God was totally absorbed. The law of God was completely fulfilled. The lamb of God was finally sacrificed. The penalty for sin was fully paid. The powers of hell were decisively defeated. The guilty will be declared totally righteous. And the justice of God was completely satisfied. Christ finished the mission. He did everything the Father asked him to do to secure our eternal redemption, which means there is nothing, nothing, nothing left for us to do but believe and receive. Nothing. Now, the movie Saving Private Ryan tells of a rescue operation immediately after the Allied invasion of Normandy in June of 1944. The War Department learned that three of the four Ryan boys had died in battle on the same day. The Army's top general ordered that the fourth son be rescued from behind enemy lines to spare his mother and father the ultimate anguish of losing all four boys in combat. So an elite squad of army rangers is assembled to find Private Ryan. And the actor who leads that team, as many of you know, is Tom Hanks. After weeks of searching, they finally find Private Ryan. But the mission was incredibly costly. Nearly everyone on the rescue team died in the process of finding and then rescuing Private Ryan. In the climactic battle, as the captain in charge of this rescue squad lay dying on a bridge, surrounded by the dead bodies of his squad, he draws Private Ryan very, very close and gasps with his last breaths, earn this, earn it. Then the captain dies, ensuring Ryan's survival. 
The captain and his team made the ultimate sacrifice to save Private Ryan. As the movie concludes, 40 years later, Private Ryan visits the cemetery where his rescuers are buried. And falling to his knees, he says to the grave of the captain who rescued him, every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what you have done for me. Sadly, this is how many Christians live the Christian life. They say to Jesus, Jesus, thank you so much for rescuing me. Hopefully, through my good works and effort, I have earned it. I'm going to pay you back, God, for rescuing me. I'm going to make it worthwhile. But Jesus did not say from the cross, earn this, earn it. Rather, he said, it is finished. He did not say, hey, look, I worked really, really hard. I did most of the work, but there's still some left for you to do. You gotta read your Bible and pray and go to church and then you'll be rescued. No, he said, it is finished, completed, accomplished, done. This means we can never, ever, ever pay God back. The sum is far too large. We can never earn heaven. This means no more penalty to pay, no more wrath to absorb, no more works to perform. There is nothing left for us to do but believe and receive. When Buddha died, his last words were, strive without ceasing. When Jesus died, his last words were, it is finished. Every other religion but Christianity tells us that we must finish the work. Strive, work hard, be good, do the right thing, and you'll be loved, saved, and fulfilled. Christ, on the other hand, tells us and the rest of the world, it is finished. Now, when Christians fail to remember this, the finished work of Christ, several things happen. They constantly wonder if they've done enough religious activities to maintain God's favor. I, I know, I know, Dave, I'm saved by grace, but I just want to make sure I get to heaven someday, so I'm going to make sure I'm on a daily Bible reading plan, I'm involved in community group, I'm serving in the nursery, that's a lot of points there, uh, I'm serving uh, on the music team, I help my neighbor shovel snow, I just want to make sure. When trials come, they wonder if the trial is the result of their sinful behavior. Maybe, maybe not. The relationship with God becomes a series of boxes to check. They're often worried about their standing with God. They often have little assurance of salvation and joy. But this is not Christianity. 
Christ completed his father's mission. He finished the work, leading Christians for hundreds of years to sing these words. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left their crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Or lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. What a savior. But the finished work of Christ does not automatically apply to you if you were raised in a Christian home or go to Christian school or have Christian parents, children. You are not automatically saved by the work of Christ because you live in a Christian home. You must personally make a decision to turn away from your sins, stop living for yourself, and trust and follow Jesus. Otherwise, you will not be saved. You'll experience something like the cross for all eternity. The cross tells us that's what our sin deserves. It's not very flattering, is it? But Jesus paid it all. And if you trust him, he paid it all for you. But you must make a decision. You must decide to follow him. Have you done this? The brilliant 20th century New Testament scholar Leon Morris wrote these words. Jesus is at the very center of Christianity and his death on the cross is the heart of it all. The habitual message of Christian preachers, the essence of the gospel is Christ's death. The equally brilliant John Stott wrote these words. Paul, the apostle Paul, his whole world was in orbit around the cross. It filled his vision, illumined his life, warmed his spirit. He gloried in it. It meant more to him than anything else. Our perspective should be the same. But why? Why is an ancient torture device designed to humiliate and cause excruciating pain, why is that the center of Christianity? Why do so many Christians wear cross necklaces? Why do so many Christians sing songs about the cross? Why do so many Christians strive to be cross-centered? Why is the cross literally the crux of Christianity? Because of what the cross achieved. What did the cross achieve? Many things. According to this text, the cross displayed God's love the cross fulfilled God's word, and the cross finished God's mission. Let's pray.